The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Acts 15, 1-11. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, David. Well, good morning. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Stacy Croft, and uh, I'm the pastor here at Christ Pres Music Row, and um, would love to get to know you. Uh, that bulletin actually is brand new for a couple reasons. One is it's now tailored to um, each location. So that bulletin actually is um, speaking. We have a, we're a multi-location church. That bulletin tells you everything going on in Music Row. Um, so everything from uh, not just announcements to upcoming events to even uh, a tithing, how uh, your tithes are being spent and, and going out. And uh, even to encourage you with that, just this last uh, week or two, um, some of our, um, our tithes were able to go out to some help in Ukraine. We have a, a few ministries there, one in particular called Reduga. And um, just some of that, our dollars, uh, were able to, to go across uh, to Ukraine to encourage this ministry to, uh, it's, a, it's kind of a youth ministry of sorts in Ukraine that we've supported for some time and uh, to continue to support them and their family. So just so you know, celebrating that uh, and letting you know what's going on in our church. Um, <clears throat> well, I remember uh, years ago, if any of you have done this, studied abroad uh, where you, you get the opportunity uh, and privileged to actually go to another country while you're in college or even maybe in a grad school program and <clears throat> um, learn more about uh, a specific subject while you're in another country. It could be something pertaining to that country. I was over there 
studying uh, English literature and political science and uh, was able to see a lot of things. Even got to go into Parliament and uh, actually see and get behind the scenes there. It was really great. During the weekends, we were able to travel and it was fun. And we just get in you know, the train and you just go. You're just like, hey, what are we going to do uh, today? And I remember going to a place called Hampton Court, which at one point, if you look it up, it was a home that was dedicated to uh, Henry VIII, the infamous Henry VIII, who had a number of wives and uh, beheaded numbers of them. You've probably heard that history. But this home, this palace of his, was one of the beautiful places. It, had, uh, it was known for its gardens and uh, maze and those kind of things. And we were walking through. It was a bunch of, you know, uh, you know Baylor college students. And uh, saw somebody in the corner, and we thought we'd just, it'd be funny to ask, hey, are there any funny, like, amazing ghost stories about this place? You know, just kind of goofy questions. And there were some things we were studying about history, but we also were just kind of thought we'd ask some, some questions, funny off-topic questions. Well, this uh, nice British gentleman uh, just said, hey, uh, well, I, I don't know about ghost stories, but I'm happy to tell you more about this place. And uh, he began kind of going with us through Hampton Court. It was kind of crazy. He began walking with us. And, and, and then every now and then he would like pull the ropes back and, and we'd just go behind the scenes. And we're like, well, what is this guy doing? I mean, just I guess if you're from here, you can kind of go where you want to go. And uh, we, we began asking lots of questions and learning more about the history of Hampton Court. And all of a sudden we were kind of like, hey, can we ask, what is it that you do here? And what we learned was this guy was one of the queen's royal court who happened to just be in plain clothes. And he just was so kind. Here are these goofy American, you know, four American uh, college students over there. And he thought, you know, I'm going to really take them behind the scenes and show them what, how the, how the kingdom really works over here. (laughs) Let's see the history. Let's see it. Uh, this passage is, is kind of an amazing one because we get to see behind the scenes of a religious council. I don't know if you remember the, the channel C-SPAN. Uh, I'm sure many of you watch that all the time. Uh, C-SPAN was a channel, I, I guess it's still on. I don't even know. I'm assuming it's still there. But you could actually watch what's going on in uh, the houses of the United States, both Senate and, and House of Reps, and kind of see things being done in there and see behind the scenes. Well, this is Luke's account as an interviewer. Now, Luke was a doctor. He was an interviewer. He was a historian. And this was him bringing us behind the scenes through the ropes to see how did the church make big decisions? And different than we might think, they didn't just, in this scene, you're not seeing them waiting for a word of God to come in like a loud, thunderous voice. They're actually having a debate. They're wrestling and and arguing and debating and discussing of what is the gospel? And how does it really impact those who are not Jewish? What does it mean? And for that time, it was where the, what Acts was telling us was Christianity began as a small group within Jerusalem where most the temple was, where Jews, most of the Jews became Christians. And then it exploded out into the Gentile regions, particularly one major place called Antioch that became another hub of the church. But that hub was all Gentile. And so they were having an argument of, do you need to take on more Jewishness to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus? 
So here's what's interesting about this passage. This passage, without this debate, without this discussion, that you may be surprised that this is what the church did in the council, this council directly applies to us because us in this room, we are what we call Gentiles. And without this debate, this room would look very different. Without this debate of how does the gospel, the good news, is the good news really good? How does it really go out and transform those who are not of Jewish descent to come and bring in the life-giving word of the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of the Lord Jesus to transform us? So this this is an amazing passage for us to unpack. And now we get to step behind the ropes. And we're going to look for a little bit at two things. We're going to look first at the debate. What was behind the debate? How did it run? And then we're going to look at what was the decision? There was an actual decision of, that came out of this. And a letter was written to the Antioch church to say, here's what we've arrived at. Pretty cool that we get to see that. So we're going to look at the debate and the decision, and hopefully you won't fall asleep like you do in uh, C-SPAN. So, <clears throat> in the first few verses, it's interesting. That word comes up a lot, and it may not be something that you're used to in the Bible when it says, but some men came from Judea, verse 1, and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Then again in verse 7, and there had been much debate right? There was much debate going on. That word's used twice to let us know this was a big deal. And again, I can't emphasize enough the importance of what was going on inside the church to have this debate and not just in, you know, we're used to Acts chapter 2 where the church is waiting in prayer for the Lord to bring his word to them. This debate was about what had already been given to them. And what it was. And in our scene in time, when we hear the word debate, it may conjure up a lot of negativity. This was not a debate like we would think, uh, even a political debate that we'd have over here at Belmont. Very different. And it's not this contentious side of this side and this side that we are in such division in our United States today. But, But it's more of, what does this debate draw out? In fact, debates then had a lot more relational capital to them. I'm reading a book called Bowling Alone. I don't know if you've heard this book. It's actually an old book. There's a, a revised version of it. It was written uh, years ago to talk about the social capital that we have in our, in our world, in our country, and how it's kind of dissolved. Social capital and what that language was even to say, how do we have relationships? This is kind of the, the crux of it. How do we have relationships where we can have healthy, even controver- controversy and difficulty and yet it doesn't dissolve the relationship. Social capital coming in to say, whether it's commerce, whether it's any sort of business, whether it's uh, education, social capital is what brings people together in relationship that goes somewhat even above those things of even the commodity being exchanged. So a little heady book, not necessarily a, a, a book that's talking about theology. But what I thought it got really interesting was it said, These days, healthy debate has disintegrated. And the reason that it has is that instead of having that social capital of trust and care for one another, and this is just an everyday book, by the way, because that's disintegrated, therefore all debate has. 
So this is why, and even when I was a, a campus minister at Vandy, I used to have friends that were not just there. I used to be good friends with a lot of the administration. And over and over, I kept hearing from professors, even over the decade I was there saying, I just can't seem to get my students to have any good discussion. It's so hard because when a question is asked, everybody goes like this. Because what, what are you doing? You're pretending to look at your notes to think about, like you're thinking about what the question is. You just don't want to be called on. But what was difficult was that they couldn't, they couldn't draw them out to have healthy discussion or debate. Because to them, that meant if we debate, if we have this discussion, it means our, our, our relationship is over. There's nothing there. That's why there's so many taboo topics in our world that we can't talk about. We're so afraid to do that. The church doesn't do that. The church here is saying, we need to have this debate because what's at stake is the good news. It's not just any news that's being purported or social capital. It's the relational capital of the Lord Jesus himself coming and the good news and how good is that news and is it good for everyone is really the question. Because that's what this debate was going on. Does someone have to become Jewish in order to become Christian? That's the question. And here's the thought is, it, good news really isn't good if someone says, hey, I'm bringing this to you. And then later on they come and say, but you got to tack on these other things. It's not good news. It's not freeing. It's just news. It's like, okay, well, I got more, more to do. It's like your boss coming to you and say, hey, you got the weekend free, but we're going to need you to come in on Saturday <laughs> to fill out these TPS reports. You know what I'm quoting there. Just for those of you that know what I'm quoting. So it, it makes you think about that question. Is good news really good? It's a really interesting thing to ask because if the good news is really good and it's the same for everyone, then you shouldn't have to change who you are to make it better to make it fit. That's what, what the question was. And here's the interesting thing. It says here, it says that the group of the Pharisees, <clears throat> now it says, verse five, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up. Now there was a group, it was the Pharisees who were having this issue and asking the question, what do we do with those who are not Jewish, who want to become Christians and want to come in? And it's easier for us to look at this the Pharisees and think, okay, there are those Pharisees. If you're somewhat familiar with the New Testament, the Pharisees take up this bad guy role against Jesus often. They are not cartoon characters. They were not hidden in cloaks trying to just dissuade Jesus. They were actually trying to be faithful to the law. And many of them actually became followers of Jesus, which is amazing because we typically don't think about that. You think of you know, the Pharisees over here, religious leaders, and then there's Jesus. But there were several of them that said, we want to follow him. He is the fulfillment of all the law that we've been trying to keep. But for them, it was still really difficult to get over that hurdle of, okay, now what do we do with the law? We've been keeping this all our lives, and now we're following Jesus. What, what goes forward? <clears throat> and out of that, the Pharisees that oftentimes get this bad rap is not very dissimilar to us. Many of us in this room may have come out of a certain background, a certain maybe growing up or a church background where you, you really thought, okay, grace is talked about a lot, the gospel, the good news. Maybe you've grown up in a church context or maybe you're coming back into a church for the first time after that. And you've been burned or become cynical with the fact that 
the church talks a lot about this good news, gospel, grace stuff, following Jesus. But what I've felt or experienced all my life is you need to do these things to prove that you are believing this grace and gospel and good news. You need to take up all these things. I always love the story that Erin McCabe, who was just up here a minute ago, ministry director, she said, she said uh, when she first became a Christian, Someone handed her a book that said, here are your first 30 quiet times. It was the title of the, the book. Th- first and she thought, okay, well, I better do that. And she had literal like panic that if she had missed a quiet time, and she did, she, she admitted that she missed one. <gasps> and she thought, am I really still a Christian? I mean, she was legitimately thinking, okay, is this what it means to be a Christian? Hey, you're now a Christian. Here's this book. Make sure you do it. Now, that's kind of funny, but for many of us, that is the DNA that we have. And that's actually where the Pharisees were coming from. They were used to, hey, I try and keep my life in a good perspective before God. They were God-believing people. But when Jesus came in, he didn't just bring on an additive. And that's what I think we get hung up on. Is Jesus a supplement to my good life, or is he exploding the paradigm and giving me a whole new worldview? My son has been looking at uh, the planets lately in his science class. I love this, because I love the stars and planets. I just, the, the, something about the vastness of space just it, um, amazes me. And, you know, one of the names that's been coming up is the first person to use a telescope was Galileo. Remember Galileo? Galileo, the Italian astronomer. And one of the things that Galileo came across was this new revolution of, okay, do the planets revolve around the earth or do they revolve around something else? It was a major heretical understanding of, okay, what revolves around the earth or what revolves around the sun? It It was huge Copernican, it was what it was called, revolution, right? And the understanding of where do the planets align and where do they revolve was so big that many people were cast out for it because they thought, well, if everything doesn't revolve around us, what does it revolve around? See, what Jesus brings in for us isn't just a new supplement that helps us say, hey, you know what? If you take up church, if you take up the Bible, you're going to see that it's going to make your life better. Like all the things will taste better. Your work will get better. Your family will get better. You know, all those dreams, aspirations, the person you've been longing to marry, the, the, the kids you've been longing to have, that job down the line, it's going to just be easier. Does it, has it felt that way to you? Maybe in some respects it has, in other ways it hasn't. But is that what Jesus is? Or is he coming to explode your paradigm and say, the planets don't revolve around you or me? This is all about who we are in him. There's not an additive that he brings. It's not, it's, not so, it's not the phrase I heard a friend of mine say recently when people, especially pastors, the, who stand up and say, you know, Christians need to, you know, people say that. You know what Christians just need to do today? You know what men and women need to do with Christianity today? And then there's this long soliloquy of what we need to be doing more of. What if it's a simple truth of remembering who we are in Christ. Of who everything revolves around. Of what we don't need to keep taking more up of. We actually need to kind of put down. 
that was the debate. Is the good news really good? Or is it just like any other news we have in our life? Is it really good to say that you have this freedom? And it's not about what you can keep taking up. It's not about what you have in order, and it's not those things. It's about the goodness of Jesus Christ. The good news for you. You don't have to become someone else. Because if you do, here's the question. If you do think, and as I heard someone say, if you keep having to put on new clothes or get dressed up for God over and over, you still don't know whether he loves you or not, do you? I mean, that's why we do confession. That's why I think it's so radical what confession does to us. It says, stop trying to put on new things and take up Jesus. That was their debate. Sounds like a pretty powerful one, huh? Pretty important for who we are today, not just then. What was their decision? What'd they come down on? Now, maybe you can read between the lines, you know, possibly where they came. But I think we need to take up for a minute and what what was happening. Peter stands up in verse 6 and 7. And he says, after, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, I think it's amazing that Peter, and this is what Acts, the book of Acts, which Luke wrote as a volume two to help particularly Greek Christians understand how did the church continue now? And Peter is standing up and saying, as he was connected to those who were Greek or Gentiles or not Jewish, to say, we are just like you. And that's a big hurdle. We are so used to as Gentiles saying, oh yeah, we're Christians. We come to church. It's kind of the thing we do. I mean, we've mentioned it a lot. There are a lot of churches on every corner. I mean, it's kind of, in, especially in a place like Nashville, even if you're not from here and you may be a Christian, you may be surprised. I've heard people say, well, I'm surprised how many people ask me where I go to church. You know, we're used to that. But in this time, to be a Gentile and be considered brought in was amazing. Because for Peter to say, they are just like us, the Lord came to them just like us, means that this gospel is revolutionary to us. And that it comes to the heart. Notice there was, the heart was spoken of just as much as debate is spoken of a number of times. And just as you read the Bible, by the way, just a total side note, that's one way you pick up, what is this passage wanting me to see? Right? And in this section, it talks about the heart. What is cleansed? Where does God go straight to? And the reason it does, as it it opens up in a number of places before and after this passage, is that the debate was about circumcision. What is the sign that you are a part of the kingdom of God? What is the sign of that cutting away that says that you are a part of this family? But Peter is saying that cleansing can't just happen externally. That's where we want it to happen. That's where we work at trying to cleanse. But it it comes straight to the heart. And the heart, by the way, wasn't just the emotional uh, center. It was actually the control center. The heart in the Bible is actually saying, 
in multiple ways, your will, your thoughts, your emotions, your actions. That was actually what the heart meant. So when he says he cleansed your heart, he's not just saying he gave you warm feelings or you feel really good about Jesus. It means that even in the moments when you don't feel really good about Jesus, he has cleansed your heart. It means he's come into you and hit and cleansed where we cannot reach. And he did it just as it did to Peter, one of the apostles, one of the 12 who followed Jesus. Says that these Gentiles who are way far off, who don't live near us, who hold weird customs that we at one time would never think that we could even associate with, are now cleansed in the same way as we are, by grace alone. He says even in the, in the last verse here in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter does an amazing thing. He twists it to say, hey, you're asking how they're saved. How do you think we're saved? It's even the question oftentimes maybe you ask of, okay, maybe on this side of Jesus, people in the New Testament were saved by grace. We talk about that. Well, how are the people in the Old Testament saved? They're saved the same way. By faith through grace, looking forward to Jesus, we're saved similarly by faith through, uh, through grace, looking backwards to Jesus, what he's done. And we have something, as Peter says, even in his letter, more sure than even they did. We have the word of God that tells us, that expresses this grace. And what is grace? Can we just, let's, let's do the thing that we need to hear. What is grace? It is that deep, unmerited favor that we all long for. It's when, I remember I was in a seminary and we were house-sitting for a family. And the youngest daughter was so good in school. And she came home for the first time with a failing grade. And what her parents did was not to look at her and say, hey, you, could, you can do better on that. You got this. They actually took the failing grade and they put it on the refrigerator and said, let's go out for ice cream. They said, we want you to understand, yes, it's hard to receive this. But what she needed to know for her in that moment was, you are not this paper. You are not this grade. You need to know what it means to receive grace in that moment. It's not about what you can do. Grace covers us in our failures. You know what else it covers us in that I often run by very quickly? Grace doesn't just cover you when your failures. It covers you in your success. One of the things that we are really good at is when we think that we are in a successful place, that God are, is, that is God's grace toward. No, his grace towards us is the fact that our success isn't the measure of God's love for you. Th that is one of the most simple things. Can I just tell you? One of the most, for me, one of the most simple things that I still can't get over. That the good news is really good and grace covers me, not just when I fail and I go, oh, I need God's love. But when I'm doing well, and I think I'm, merit, I'm earning it right then. 
or I'm somehow keeping it, or I don't need it in that moment. His grace, his unmerited love that is over you is in the moment right now where maybe some of you are like, you know, I don't have a whole lot going on in my life right now. For once, I feel like things are cruising. For once, I'm not like worried about this or that. You know what? God's grace is over you. So that there's nothing you can look up and say, this is what earned me that. And it consistently tells you how loved you are and how kept you are regardless. Grace isn't something we just receive either. It's something you live in. It means you don't just hear it at church. You walk out and you live in it in every second. It means that God, in every moment, you aren't even thinking about him. Have you ever thought about that? The number of moments, maybe Sunday is the only time you think of God because it's when you come to church. I'm not saying I think about him all the time because I'm the pastor. <laughs> I'm a professional Christian. No, there are plenty of times I look up and I go, you know what? I haven't even thought about or talked to or opened my Bible. That hadn't even come in my brain. And you know what's glorious? What calls me back to it isn't the fact that I, I go, oh man, I gotta do that. That happens plenty. But God doesn't guilt you to come to him by he comes and says, I love you. Come talk to me. Come be with me. That's grace. It's not sentimental, emotional. It's real, tangible, powerful love. Look, don't, you don't have to take my word for it. Take Bono's word for it. Bono, you too. In an interview asked about the difference between grace and karma, which I would think most of us, we believe in grace, but we can often live in karma. Listen to what he says about this when he was interviewed. <clears throat> he says, he began by, uh, the interviewer asked Bono, he said, doesn't he think appalling things happen when people come, become religious? And Bono countered, he said, it's a mind-blowing thing, the concept that God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. The interview asked, what's that? Bono says, at the center of all religions is, is the idea of karma. You know, what you, put at, what you put in comes back to you, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Or in physics, the physical laws, every action is met with an equal or opposite one. And yet along comes the idea that, of grace to upend all of that. Love interrupts. And if you like the consequences of your actions, which in my case is a very good news because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. The interviewer says this, and I thought this was interesting. He says, the son of God who takes away the sins of the world? Gosh, I, I wish I could believe in that. The point of the death of Christ is that he took on the sins of the world, is what Bono says, so that we, what we put out did not come back to us. And that our sinful nature doesn't reap the obvious death, replied Bono. It's not our own good works that get us through the gates of heaven. You know, it'd be easy to come to this table and think of this table as another work. But this passage ends in a very interesting way. It doesn't end with them just talking about the good news. It ends with them saying, 
Don't go back and put a yoke on those around you. Don't go back and then it says in verse 10, why are you putting God to the test by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And when he said yoke, he wasn't just saying that as like an illustrative term. He was actually getting to the fact that there was a yoke of the law that people thought they could actually bear. And I want to encourage you that coming to this table is not coming to take on another yoke. It's not to come and, and take up something. If you're not really in relationship with Jesus, or maybe you are and you think, well, this, this proves that I am. That's not what this table's for. This is a table of grace. This is what Jesus meant when he said, take on my yoke that is easy. Take up my yoke because the burden that I give to you is light. And Jesus didn't use those words, again, to, to be illustrative because they had such agrarian farming communities and they had yokes on oxen. They took it up because the people felt oppressed trying to make God love them. The reason we live in relationship with God and you have any way of coming to this table is because he's already given his body and blood. It's not for you to give yours. You could never do that. You come by grace, you feed on, by faith through the grace of the Lord Jesus, and you leave back to your seat and through these doors in grace. God has you. He loves you. You don't need to earn it. He, he gives himself to remind you of these glorious things. Praise be to God for his grace, his body, his blood given for you. Let's stand now.